Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. Now John chapter fourteen. We're going to try and get through John chapter fourteen completely, if we can. I'm very thankful uh, to have the opportunity once again to be able to teach the Bible study. It's been a long time. I think it was like 2015 when we started John, and now we're in John chapter fourteen. So we made it to the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, and that last week goes through, I think, John 19 at least, um, another couple of chapters, uh, with the last day, we're, we're within the last 24 hours of, of Jesus' earthly life. So just to bring you up to speed here, some things that we looked at in John chapter 13, and, uh, and by the way, I might as well tell you, okay, next to that. John 14 and all of these different blanks, that's the outline tonight, okay? Because all of this fits in one specific outline that I think is really cool how it worked out. This was not on purpose. This is just the way that it happened. And so the title of, of, of tonight's lesson is 10 ways, 10 ways <clears throat> to remove trouble from your heart. <clears throat> and I don't mean, you know, physical trouble. I have some physical trouble with my heart. I can't... <laughs> I can't do nothing about that, but as far as the, the emotional, um, the spiritual, the different things that go on in our hearts and lives, um, a shorter version of that title would be How Not to Be Troubled, okay? How Not to Be Troubled or Ten Ways to Remove Trouble from Your Heart. And so Judas has left the upper room. Jesus has given a new commandment to his disciples to love one another as he has loved them. And then he tells them again of his impending death. He's mentioned a number of times now about, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to uh, lay down my life and so on. Um, and Peter proclaims that he would die for Jesus. How can you, how can you say that, that, that you're going you're, you're to die? I'll, I'll lay down my life for you, Lord. And then Jesus says, really? I mean, he doesn't say really like that. But he says, wilt thou lay down, lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. And so this whole entire situation with everything with Judas and the different things that Jesus tells his disciples, it's mentioned when Judas was getting ready to um, betray him, getting ready to leave the room, that it says Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He was troubled in his spirit. And so it's kind of like, there's a tense situation there. It's at the end of the Passover supper, and Jesus mentions uh, to John that Judas, it's revealed to John that Judas would be the one that would betray him. And nobody expected it. None of the other disciples expected it. And with the end of that evening, really, or the end of that uh, section that we looked at last chapter, it, it, it ends on kind of a tense note with Jesus confronting Peter and saying, are you really going to lay, lay down your life for my sake? I'll tell you that you're going to deny me three times before the uh, rooster crows. And so this is where we pick it up. It's a time of, 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 of tense uh, tension. It's a time of trouble. It's a time of difficulty. It's a time of stress. And then Jesus says this, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. And so... Number one there, or letter A, is, as, as I have it, the first thing that we need to do in order to uh, not be troubled, the first thing we need to do to remove trouble from our heart, look at verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. The first thing is receive Jesus. 
the first thing that we need to do in order to not have trouble in our hearts and lives is receive Jesus. He says here, let not your heart be troubled. Why? Why, why should we not have trouble in our heart? And by the way, the word trouble right there is the exact same word when it says Jesus was troubled in his spirit when he said, one of you this night will betray me. Okay? Um, it's interesting. Um, here, let me go ahead and read what it says here in our notes. Do you remember in the previous chapter how Jesus was troubled in his spirit? Here the exact same Greek word is used. Trouble, Jesus was troubled at the thought of his betrayal and subsequent death, bearing his father's wrath. Why did Jesus die? Was it because he did anything wrong? No. He did absolutely nothing wrong. There was no deceit. There was no guile. There was no, you know, no, no, no violence found in his, in, in his speech, in his mouth, as it says in Isaiah 53. And yet he went to the cross and he died for you and for me. Here we start to see the beginnings, kind of the, the, the shadows. You know how we talk about in our, in our magazine, the shadows of the tribulation period, the things that look like they're leading up to what the Bible calls the end times? In the same way, in this chapter right here, Jesus is not yet on the cross, but we are beginning to see the shadows of his atonement. He was troubled in his spirit when he said, one of you is going to betray me. So. The sufferings of Jesus on our behalf didn't start the second that the nail was nailed through his hand okay, and his feet. I believe it starts right here and continues through the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating, as it were, the Bible says, great drops of blood because he's under such stress. And his stress is not, you know, I missed the flight or my spouse is angry with me or even I have a terminal disease. Those things, in the way that I mentioned them, got progressively worse and progressively more serious. But you know, what Jesus suffered and what right here he is thinking about getting ready to suffer is far worse. Why is that? Because it's the wrath of the God of Israel. It's the wrath of the God that created you and me. It's the wrath of the God that gives us breath that would entirely be poured out upon his son. That's what he's getting ready to endure. Because of that, a couple verses back in chapter 13, his heart was troubled, his spirit was troubled, thinking about his betrayal. But now he can tell his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. He can tell them, you do not need to have fear. You do not need to have worry or anxiety or stress. Why? Believe in me. Trust in me. Everything relies upon what Jesus did on the cross. And this world is just so far down the road of trying to find any single thing that they can in order to get them relief from the trouble that you find in this world. What did Jesus tell his disciples? There's another thing that Jesus said. He said, be of good cheer. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, he says, for I have overcome the world. And so everybody that's outside of this, they don't have this solution. They don't have this opportunity to look to. They don't have this um, option as far as they know, but they do have that option. The Bible says that for God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him, uh, that he sent his only begotten son. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have ever, uh, everlasting life. Anybody that believes in what Jesus has done will grant them, anybody that receives Jesus, will grant them forgiveness and atonement. Why? Not because they're a good person, not because they crossed off X, Y, and Z in their religious rites and rituals, not because, uh, you know, they did a certain set of actions or not because they believed really, really hard and really, really sincerely in something they thought was right. It's all because of the punishment, physical and spiritual, that God the Father poured out upon his Son in our behalf. So that's why he can say, let not your heart be troubled. Ironically, this is why he can tell us, let not your heart 
be troubled. Okay? You and I have nothing to worry about, nothing to fear. Why? Because Jesus took all of God's wrath in our place. He was forsaken, so we will never have to be. Jesus is also saying, believe in me like you believe in Elohim, God. Okay? All of the disciples, all of these ones that he were talk was talking to were Jewish. They knew who God was. Okay? They knew about Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. He's saying, you believe in Elohim, believe in me too. In the same way that you believe in him. He's asking them to trust him and to not be fearful. In the same way, Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that verse that I mentioned. Nicodemus was a Jewish guy. Okay? He knew the scriptures. He knew about the God of Israel. He knew about the Creator. And Jesus told Nicodemus, God, Elohim, sent his Son, and that if you believe in him, you won't perish. In Psalm 2, the second Psalm, God told uh, David, or through David, the words are, uh, Kiss the son, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And then it says this, Psalm 2, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Put their trust in who? The son. That's in the Psalms. And so this is not a new thing. Believing in the son of God, believing in the Messiah. Number two, refocus your eyes on eternity. Okay, number one, receive Jesus. Number two, refocus your eyes on eternity. In my Father's house, verse 2, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. You see, believing in Jesus, receiving him as your Savior, and then focusing your eyes on eternity will help your heart to not be troubled, whatever you're going through. Here when it says, in my father's house, house in the Bible, in the New Testament specifically, can mean a literal physical building, or it can also carry with it an idea of a household or family. And here's three examples here. As a house, a building, uh, Matthew 2.11, and when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And so this is a specific building, a literal physical building here in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, secondly, number two, used as a family, related by blood, marriage, slave-master relationships, or worker-boss relationships. Um, Matthew uh, 5.15, Mark 6.4. And here's Mark 6.4. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. Now, is that still talking about a literal, physical building? Yeah. But it, the, the context, it implies family. A prophet is not without honor except among his own, in his own family, in his own house. Okay? So there is the idea of a literal, physical building, a house, but it also carries with it intrinsically the idea of a family or a household. And then it also can be uh, thought of as the idea of property or possessions. And so all of these things are connected together. In my Father's house, okay, in the, in the kingdom of God, in the eternal kingdom, there are many mansions. Here, the word mansions, the word translated mansions, this is interesting, is the exact same word translated abode in verse 23 of this chapter. The word translated mansions, Monet, you can just think about, you know, the, the famous painter, okay? Monet means abiding, an abode, or a dwelling place. When I read the word mansion, I don't know about you, but I immediately picture like the Beverly Hillbillies and they're in their mansion, right? Um, in my mind, this passage is really, really more personal than that, okay? It's not some kind of far off place that's a mansion we saw on TV that, that, that we have nothing to do with, but it's personal. Jesus is preparing your room in his father's house. When you look at this word, the Greek word behind mansion, you think, oh man, I was preparing to have, you know, a, a cement pond and all that kind of stuff that goes along with that, you know, bowling alley in the basement and, you know, you see all this stuff on TV, lifestyles of the rich and famous. 
But then when you look at this verse a little bit closer, okay, um, where Jesus says, I will make my, my abode, we will make our abode with them, okay, it's like a close personal place. What do they say when they're, <laughs> this is kind of silly, but what do they say on like those house TV shows or if you go to see a realtor, you know, and, 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 and there's a place uh, in, in the house that's really small, what's like the realtor language for or small. Oh, that's cozy. That's intimate, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> here, it's not inferring that it's small, but it's more like when Jesus says, "I go to prepare a place for you," it's like, okay, he's going to make this like row of of, of, of mansions, you know, mansion row. Did you guys see that? That there was a thing in like Turkey that uh, they decided to make houses that look like castles, and you can go and you can buy a, a, a castle house in Turkey for I think it's four hundred thousand dollars. I mean, they're not like gigantic, but the interesting thing is they're like, it's like a suburb. Like, they're all the same plot of land, like this far away from each other. It's almost like townhomes, but they're like detached. And uh, they're shaped like castles. Anyway, that's what I picture when I think of mansions. And that's a false perception, okay? It's not like Jesus is saying, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm already preparing uh, 100,000 other ones identical to each other, cookie-cutter homes right next to each other. And, you know, there's many mansions, and you're going to have one of them. Congratulations. Here, it's, Jesus is talking to who? He's talking to 11 guys, okay, that are scared. He's saying, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or abodes, dwelling places. In my father's house, there's many dwelling places. There's many rooms. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And to me, that's worth more, when you understand it correctly, that's worth more than any mansion that you can imagine uh, in that context. It's a very specific place for you, just for you. And Jesus is preparing it. And I think that that's, it's, it's, it's much more personal than we think. Some thoughts about this. It won't be a shack or a ramshackle apartment. Okay, I don't even know if that's a word. It's just what popped in my head. Jesus, who is God, has been preparing this for the last 2,000 years. Okay? Because he tells them, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again. Um, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, which it says in verse, verse number 3. And so the sense is he is in the preparing until he comes back. He's in the preparing of that place for you until he comes back. It doesn't say that, um, you know, strictly, but that's kind of what's inferred here. What else is interesting is the Jewish concept of betrothal, okay, in a wedding. When a, when, when a, when a Jewish, especially first century, uh, Jewish man and, and, and woman become engaged, okay, they're betrothed, and then there's this period of maybe up to a year where the husband goes away. What does he do? He, he prepares a place, right? Okay, and so that's kind of the imagery that's used here. Jesus the Messiah is going to go away. Why is he going to go away? Well, he's going to die. And he's going to rise again, and he's going to ascend back to the Father. And while he is there, before he comes back, He's going to be preparing a place for us. Yes? Do you think it's true um, in antiquity or in um, early Jewish culture where the, the bridegroom would build onto the father's house? Did he do that or live in the father's house? You know, that's something that I'd have to get back to you on to be certain. Uh, I have heard that before, though. I know that sometimes there was multi-generational homes where they would you know, build another room or build another, yeah. Um, whether, whether or not across the board that is the regular thing, it definitely took place. It definitely happened. Because um, I remember with Peter's home, you know, in Capernaum, they could, they could tell that that was what was going on. Not only with his home, but other homes from that period. They were multi-generational fam familial homes, you know. Um, certainly, yes. Um, which is also interesting. You know, he goes back to the father's house uh, to, to make some rooms for us, right? Um, and then, what was the father's house like here on earth? This is interesting to think about. 
What did David say? You know, um, you, 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 dwell in a, you dwell in a tent, Lord, talking to, talking to God. Um, and you deserve a house, right? And then what did God do? He, did, he said that David wouldn't be able to do it, right? But that he would allow his son Solomon to be the one to build the house for the Lord, other than the, the, the tabernacle, which became basically the, the stationary tabernacle there in Shiloh until the time of Solomon building the first temple. So when you think of, my father's, in my father's house are many mansions. Okay, Dan, you're saying that it's not an actual like Beverly Hillbillies mansion that we're each going to have our own. Okay? But Jesus is going to be preparing these rooms, these ab 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 abiding places, these dwelling places, specifically for you and for me. And what do we know about God's house that he specifically gave the design for on this earth, a.k.a. the temple. What was Solomon's temple like? It was, it, was, it was the most glorious, magnificent building probably this earth has ever seen, nor ever will see. What do you think his house is like in heaven? If that's what he had people build here, just for a place for him to come down in his Shekinah glory. Oh my, I can't imagine. This is something to get excited about. This is something that should make the trouble and anxiety and fear in our heart just kind of fizzle away. Okay, because we have a Savior, we have our sin taken care of and paid for, and He is preparing a place for us where we will dwell with Him for eternity, which takes me to my next point, number four. Jesus will be there. On top of all that, Jesus will be there. Which leads me to number three, your next blank there. The next thing that we need to do to remove trouble from our heart, rejoice in the return of Jesus. Rejoice in the return of Jesus. He says this in verse number three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. So it's not just, you know, the first half of the verse, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself, end of story. No. He says that where I am, there you may be also. I mean, it's like a very uh, detailed statement to get us to understand, yes, we will be in the exact same place as him. And then he says, and whither I go, you know. And the way you know. How, how can this get us excited? How can this get us so that trouble does not bother us? Um, when I met my wife for the second time, it's a long story. I met her once in like, what was it, 2004 or 2003? Okay, 2004. Anyway, I met her again, okay, in September of, uh, of 2005. Okay, so September 2005, we met, and then we very shortly after that fell in love. And uh, about December of that year, home on Christmas break, I bought an engagement ring. Okay, so this was like three months later. Some of my friends at, at, at college, they're like, you, you just met this girl, and you, you have an engagement ring already? Like, how long have you been dating? Um, Anyway, so I bought it in, in, in December when I was home on Christmas break. Or more, my mom will appreciate this, more uh, accurately, my mom bought it. Or she helped me to. I don't remember the exact, she's probably going to comment on you there. She's watching, I think. Um, but um, so during that, that last semester of my senior year, I had a lot of different stuff going on. You know, had a lot of tests, had a lot of quizzes, had, you know, just all kinds of stuff and worrying about, am I going to graduate and having finals and stuff like that. But that whole entire time, you see, I took that ring. In, in, in the college that I went to, we didn't have, like, locks on the doors. And so I gave that ring when we got back to college. I got back to college in January of 06, and I gave the ring to the residence manager of, of my residence hall for safekeeping because he could lock his door and he had a place that he could put it for safekeeping and it stayed there for the entire semester 
until we were, I was getting ready to leave after taking finals. That whole semester, guess what I was thinking about? Yeah. And, 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 and more specifically, proposal. How, 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 so my parents, they took us to Disney World after I graduated. And I had to figure out how and when I was going to do this. And you know, uh, anyway, so during my time of my, 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 my last semester, my senior year, do you think I got really troubled by any of the stuff that transpired in between? You see, <laughs> I was let, OK, I'll put it this way. I was less of a wreck. I was less of a wreck than I was the same time my junior year. And what made all the difference was that I was excited about a long time promise. When I bought that ring, it was like, this is going to happen. You know, That whole semester, that's where my attention was. <laughs> okay? that's, what my, that's what my thinking surrounded, and especially as it got closer. And so you and I, as we go through this life, Jesus has given a promise that he is going to return. It hasn't happened yet, but we should rejoice and set our sights on things above. Um, I already mentioned refocus our eyes on eternity. We need to be looking for and forward to the second coming of Jesus because there's so much things uh, that are detailed in the scripture. And when you look at it this way, I mean, a lot of Jewish people, they didn't realize that the Messiah would come the first time to die, be a suffering servant, before he became the ruling, reigning king of Israel, destroying Israel's enemies, and so on. That's still going to happen. But according to Daniel, according to other passages, you see, this is yet to come. And this is what we have to look forward to when he returns for us and receives, him, receives us unto himself. Then he says, uh, whether I go, you know, and the way, you know. Jesus is obviously speaking here of what we call heaven, the Father's dwelling place, okay? And when we set our sights on those things, like that whole time that I was in that semester, I hadn't yet proposed to Lois, but it kind of made going through my days a little bit easier as I counted down when that was going to happen, okay? Um, number four, I'm going to see how well I know what numbers correspond to what letters because I have it as letter D, but Number four, realize, and this is, one of, this is one of the biggest ones, next to the first one, receive Jesus, realize you already have the solution to your biggest problem. Realize you already have the solution to your biggest problem. Thomas, uh, Thomas says unto Jesus, after Jesus says, where I'm going you know, and the way you know, Thomas says unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So Jesus tells Thomas, he says, you know what? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Now, there's a number of things about that statement that this world that we live in does not like. Jesus is exclusive. Jesus says, I am the way. Not only does he say, I am the way, I am the way to heaven, I am the way to forgiveness, I am the way to atonement and a right relationship with God, he also says, he even further clarifies it, no man comes to the Father, or woman for that matter, nobody comes to the Father but by me except through me. I have on your next page here uh, to kind of help you to understand where this world is. Okay, uh, You can go ahead and flip the page. Um, what was I going to say? So Jesus says, I am the way. This world doesn't like that because they want everybody to be right. They want everybody to have their own way, to do whatever they want to do. And then secondly, he says, I am the truth. This world does not like the idea of absolute truth. They only want to hear about relative truth. You have your truth, I have mine, we're all going to get together, and we're all going to be in heaven someday because we all believe sincerely in whatever we believe in. Question? I think it's more that they just don't want that truth. Yes, yes, absolutely. 
I'd yeah well it's also you know um, we're supposed to be tolerant of everybody tolerate everybody except for the Bible Bible believing born again Christians yeah Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's 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 the only form of um, of intolerance. Well, I wouldn't say that. People are uh, anti-Semitic as well, and that 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 seems to be allowed <laughs> more and more uh, in this world. Anti-Zionism is the new anti-Semitism. And there's crazy stuff going on with that, too. Um, anybody that believes in the God of the Bible is just, everybody else is right but you, you know, kind of a thing. Look at this. This is an interesting survey. The survey on the following page was taken over the course of six years by the Pew Research Center. This survey is dealing with only with those who claimed religious affiliation as Christian, okay? which includes Roman Catholics okay, in, their, in, in their categorization of Christian. Two statements were made. Respondents were asked with which one they agreed. Okay? Uh, the first one, and I have these written down here. Um, let's see here. Uh, at the, at, on the survey uh, table on the left, Look at the paragraph, uh, the second paragraph from the bottom. The first question, um, or the first statement is, my religion is the one true faith leading to eternal life. Okay, that's the first statement that they said, tell us if this is true or false, or whatever comes closer to your belief system. My religion is the one true religion leading to, or true faith or leading, to, leading to eternal life, or secondarily, Many religions can lead to eternal life. And keep in mind, this survey was taken of only people that claimed religious affiliation Christian, which the majority of these are probably Roman Catholic, which I would disagree with that categorization as Christian. But in 2008, look at 2008, that column on the left table. Uh, skip down to, let's see here. White Evangelical Protestant, okay, which I guess is what they would categorize all of us as, uh, white or black here, white Protestant, uh, evangel uh, white evangelistic Protestant, black Protestant. Um, here it says, mine is the one true faith, 49%. Many religions can go to heaven, almost half, 47%. Uh, and the other ones, White mainline Protestant, and I'm not sure if this is, you know, Presbyterian and, you know, non-evangelical types. Uh, mine is the one true religion. Only 13% believed that. True faith. Many religions have their pathway to God, 82%. Black Protestant is pretty much equal to the evang white evangelical Protestant, 45% and 49%. And then Catholics, 18%. Mine is the one true faith, 77%. Many religions, and then white Catholic. I'm not sure what the difference is between all Catholics, white Catholics. 11% um, mine is the one true faith. 84% many religions. Now what's interesting here, if you look over at the right column, the question is which religions lead to eternal life? Which religions lead to eternal life? Um, Catholicism, or can Catholicism lead to eternal life? And out of the entire group, out of all of them, 73% um, said yes. Can, uh, let's see here, let's go down to Judaism. Can Judaism lead to eternal life? Out of the entire group, 69% said yes, it can. Um, out of the, the, the Protestant groups, 64%, 73%, 62%, saying that Judaism, those that, you know, within the religion of Judaism, um, that they have a, a pathway to God. In Islam, 
52% was the number here. Out of all of these so-called quote-unquote Christian groups, 52% said people that are of the Muslim faith, they can go to heaven. How does all of this line up with Jesus' statement in John chapter 14 that we just read, John 14:6? It doesn't, it doesn't line up. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. In the same way, Psalm 2, kiss the Son, receive the Son, worship the Son. Not S-O-N, but S-U-N. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him, it says. Uh, Hinduism, 53% uh, said that Hindus have their pathway to God, have their pathway to heaven. 42% said atheists can, can go to heaven. Um, this is contrary to the teachings of Jesus, contrary to the teachings of the New Testament, and also contrary to the teachings of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the, Jewish, uh, the Hebrew scriptures. Okay, so back to my notes here. If there was some other way, if there was some other way to obtain eternal life, then why did Jesus have to die? You see, God has always been exclusive, even before the death of Jesus. Listen to Isaiah chapter 45. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image. And pray unto a God that cannot save. You see this? God says in Isaiah 45, there's other gods out there that cannot save. They cannot take you to heaven. No matter how hard you pray to them, no matter how many idols you make to them. He says, tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me. A just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. God has always, always, always been exclusive. I think I mentioned this later in the notes, but I'm going to mention it now. Some people, people that we talk to in the Jewish world, they would say, well, what about Jesus? Isn't he another God? Isn't he some other person? See, what we believe very, very strongly about Jesus probably the most cardinal belief that we can have about Jesus is that he is the God of Israel. Not that Jesus became God. Not that Jesus achieved deity, as the Mormons believe that people can do. You can't do that. There's no other gods. There is one God. Here of Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. But that same word for one, and the, and the word Elohim, they convey an idea of a, of, of a, a, a complex unity. Okay? And so Jesus, I believe, and the scripture clearly teaches this, not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament, that Jesus is and has to be the God of Israel in order to be the Messiah. And so we're not saying that Jesus became God. We're saying that God became a human. God became man. God took on flesh, was born of a virgin, and died on a cross you and for me. And so often we see this parallel between Jesus and the Father. Jesus claimed to be God. He absolutely did. He claimed to be the God of the Bible. And if Jesus was not God, then he's not the Messiah. Because the description of the Messiah, as it says in the Old Testament, is that the Messiah would have to be the God of Israel in human flesh. Jesus says in verse 7, if ye had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip says unto him, Lord, show us the Father. Show us Elohim. Show us the God of Israel. He says, have I been so long with you? And yet you have not known me, Philip? He that hath seen the Father, he that hath seen me, hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believe us not that I am in the Father and the Father in me. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he doeth the works. 
Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Listen to this. Jesus is God. In Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, it says he is the express image of the Father, meaning that if there was a way to see the Father, who is a spirit, okay, who is in spirit and in truth, it would be through Jesus. Jesus is how God shows us who he is. Jesus told the Jewish people, he said in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. He told the disciples, you call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. Jesus forgave sins, which only God had the authority to do. Jesus said that he had seen Abraham and that he is eternal. He said, before Abraham was, I am, in John chapter 8. He also said that he had seen God, which no one else could do, in John chapter 6. Now, Jesus says in the end of verse 11, he says, Believe me for the very work's sake. If you're not going to believe me for what I say, believe me for what you've seen. Believe me for what you've experienced. The works that Jesus had done there should have caused people to believe. The same works that we read of in the Gospels, as well as the works he has done in our lives, should cause us, as well as others, to believe. Because he's still working mightily in people's lives today. He's working in and through our lives. The things that he does in our lives should cause others to, to say, huh, what's that person got? Um, it should cause others to believe. And this kind of leads me to our next point. Point number, uh, what am I at, five? Yes. Uh, I have been told and read in John where he says, uh, before Abraham was, I am. The I am that he uses in the Greek is the same word that uh, words that were translated as the burning bush when God was telling Moses that I am. Mm -hmm. that I am or I am that I am and that there's uh, four or five places in John you know when they pick up their stones to cast at it mm -hmm. when he says I am he uses that term and that's what they find so offensive because they say you, you're making yourself equal to God now I, know, I have two things to say about that passage Okay, I believe 100% for sure that when Jesus said that before Abraham was I am okay they took it to mean exactly what Jesus meant by it, that he is eternal, that he is before Abraham, that he is God. Now, as far as what Jesus said by the words I am being interpreted as he's saying the same thing that God said from the burning bush, I don't believe that to be true. Okay? Jesus is still 100% claiming to be God. He's claiming to be eternal. He's claiming to be before Abraham. But what God told Abraham in Hebrew, he says, tell them that ahiah, asher, ahiah. I will be that which I will be. It's not necessarily exactly I am that I am. It's like future tense. Ehia, asher, ehia. I will be that which I will be. Here Jesus is not speaking Hebrew, okay? To our knowledge, he's speaking Greek, and I believe he's just making a simple statement. Before Abraham even was, I already am in the present. And in that way, I believe they understood it to be that way. Now, I might be, I might be wrong. I'm not going to be dogmatic on that, but I don't think that, that they were taking specifically what he said to be the exact words that God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, but they were taking it to mean, Jesus, you are claiming that you are God. You are claiming that you are before Abraham and that you are eternal because that's exactly what God's name means, the self-existent one, the one that's just always been there, always was, always will be. And Jesus was uh, relating that or correlating that thought to himself. Um, I don't think it had anything, to my knowledge, that had to do with the specific words relating to what God said from the burning bush. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Good question. Um, Let me say one other thing you just wrote. Sure. There's a Bible I can't remember. It's not Tyndall. It's an older Bible that I read when I was younger. And it said what you're saying when it says, I am that I am, uh -huh. said it really means I am what I am becoming. Or that, I mean, they yeah. put that in there. Yeah. I've never heard that since. Hardly. I didn't know that at all until I started studying Hebrew. 
and looking at that passage, and, and that's exactly what God is saying. I will be that which I will be. Um, and it's, 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 it's an interesting, interesting thought, yeah. Um, okay, so what we need to do, number five, also, another thing we can do to remove trouble from our heart is reset your perspective to do the works of Jesus. Reset your perspective to do the works of Jesus. He says in verse number 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. Does that mean we're going to walk on water? Does that mean we're going to heal people from sickness and disease? Does that mean we're going to raise people from the dead? Does that mean we're going to feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes? No. No, I don't think that's what it's saying here. And let me explain. This is a promise to all believers, not just the apostles, not just the 11 that are there, okay? He says, he that believes on me, he's going to do the works that I do. He'll do them also. What does that mean? We would carry on the works of Jesus. We shouldn't immediately imagine all of his greatest miracles listed so far. And here are some of them. And this is just from the book of John, by the way. John 2, he turned the water into wine. John 4, he read the mind of the woman of Samaria. Uh, also, John 4, he healed the official's son. John 5, he healed the man crippled for 38 years. Also in John 5, he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. Um, John 6, he walked on water. John 9, he healed a man born blind. And then John 11... He raised Lazarus from the dead. Is that the works that we're expected to do? I mean, are, are we all going to be Benny Hinn? I, I hope not. Boy, talk about a con man. Um, okay. The words spoken of here, though the works spoken of here, are like the works in verse 10. Huh, wouldn't you think of that? The context actually means something about what Jesus is saying. Works that cause others to believe. In John 17, Jesus says that one of these works that will cause others to believe is loving one another. Now, that's almost on par with walking on water sometimes, right? Sometimes loving one another. But we will be Christ-like. All of these works, and I'm going to detail this a little bit further here, they have to do with us being like Jesus, acting like Jesus. Not necessarily... I'm turning water into wine. I'm going to walk on water. I'm going to, you know, all those different things that Jesus did that were miraculous physical miracles. That's not what's being referred to here. But the purpose that's being referred to is works that would cause others to believe. Okay? And then it says this, if, if, if that wasn't enough, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. So we're just going to, we're going to walk on air. You know, we're going to fly. We're going to do all this kind of crazy stuff because it has to be greater than the things that Jesus did, right? That's what we think, but that's, that would be an incorrect interpretation. What does this mean? How can we possibly do anything greater than Jesus did during his earthly ministry? A little bit of a hint here. It has to do partially with the last clause in that sentence where he says, you're going to do greater works because I'm going to my Father. Okay? It all relies upon that statement. Ooh, we are not going to get through John 14 tonight. Okay. All right. Um, commercial for whenever I uh, continue this later. Um, we'll, make it, we'll make it a little bit further, but not through the whole thing. Okay. We will do greater works because Jesus died, was buried, arose, and ascended. Do you get that? Because I'm going to the Father. You're going to do greater works. You're going to do the works that I do. Anybody that believes, anybody, in fact, everybody that believes in me is going to be able to do the works that I do. And not only that, they're going to do greater works because I'm going to the Father. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again and go to my Father in heaven. And because of that, very specifically because of that, you're going to be able to do greater works than what I have done. What are the preceding verses all about? Okay, the immediately preceding verses. Causing others to believe. Number three here. Paul told the Corinthian church that not all 
would do all the sign gifts, okay? Those first century things that God uh, miraculously allowed his church to partake of, like prophecy, speaking in other languages, which were known languages, by the way. Um, just miraculous different things that God allowed them to do, healing. None of those are in play today, I don't believe. Um, but uh, even then, Paul told the Corinthian church, not everybody's going to do this. Not everybody's going to do miracles. Not everybody's going to do healings. Not everybody's going to do uh, speaking in tongues, which are no longer active. It's not miracles. Anybody who believes can do it, and it has to do with the ascension. What is that? What does this all boil down to? We're narrowing it down. Remember that whenever Jesus forgave sin or brought one to the faith, it was based on a promise. You see that? Jesus had not yet died. He was not yet buried. He had not yet risen again. And when he forgave sin, it was based upon a promise. It was looking to the atonement, looking forward to it. Any and all forgiven sins are based upon what? The cross. Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection for your sin and for mine. You and I have an amazing opportunity to testify by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit of the sacrificed, buried, and risen Savior. Did Jesus do that in his earthly ministry? I mean, had he died, buried, and rose again at that point? Okay, were people indwelt with the Holy Spirit at that point? No. All of that was accomplished when he ascended to the Father. And we read about this later in John 14, in this very chapter. I need to go to the Father. And if I go, I'll come again, right? But then he also says later in John 14, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, which will dwell in you. And he will lead you. He will guide you. Um, we get to tell people, by the works we do, following Christ with a changed, loving life, okay? Following him as a believer. Jesus is getting ready to, for, to, to, for his disciples and those that follow him, those that believe in him, to commence in doing this ministry. And he says, you're going to, anybody that believes is going to do the works that I do. What kind of works? Bringing people to God. See, nobody else had really done that before in the sense of testifying of who Jesus was, and especially during Jesus' earthly ministry, he had not yet died. He was not yet buried and, and, and risen again and ascended to the Father. But now, and he says, shortly after I go to the Father, you're going to be able to do that. You're going to be able to do something that not even I did in my earthly ministry, and that's tell people about the already died, already buried, already risen again Savior. Um... Let's see here. We get to tell about an atonement that has been already paid for rather than a promise for the future. It's a fully paid ransom. It's already done. We're looking back at it. It's done in the past. But at this point in Jesus' ministry, that's still something that was yet in the future. And so the works that we will do, the works of Jesus, and, and even greater. What greater thing? Is it greater than walking on water? to show somebody how they can have forgiveness and eternal life based upon the death, burial, and resurrection of an already ascended Savior? See, that's the point. That's what makes it greater than feeding 5,000 people with two, loaves and, uh, and two fish and five loaves. That's what makes it greater than turning water into wine. That's what makes it greater than healing somebody who had been uh, you know, paralyzed for 38 years. And so it kind of all puts it into perspective when we realize what Jesus is talking about. Okay, letter F, which is number six, right? Number six, you're blank there. Recognize the purpose and power of prayer. Recognize the purpose and power of prayer. Jesus says this, verse 13, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, those two verses there have been removed from their context more often than I can possibly think of. If you just tack in Jesus' name in there, whenever you pray, it's like, a, it's like an abracadabra, you know, in Jesus' name. And then I have my prayer answered. 
you know, because it was in Jesus' name, right? He says, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. And we just have a blank check, right? No, that's not what this is saying, okay? This is not a blank check as long as we sign Jesus' name to it. It has a direct link to the previous context. What is the previous context? What are we just talking about with the different things listed on this page, starting with like verse number 10? He says, if you're not going to believe me for what I say, believe me for the work's sake. And then he says, he that believes in me is going to do the same works that I do, and even greater works. What is that? Causing people to believe. Okay? And in this ministry of bringing people to God, through our love, through our changed life, through the death, burial, and resurrection of an already ascended Savior, in this ministry, in this mission, whatsoever you ask in my name, what does that mean in his name? It doesn't have anything to do with necessarily words that we say at the end of a prayer. Okay? Listen to this. In his name means for his fame, for his glory, lifting him up for the purpose of his glory as we do these great works. It's all about Jesus. If our prayer in the middle of trying to do Jesus's ministry is all about Jesus, guess what? Jesus says, I'm going to answer that prayer. I'm going to empower you to be able to talk to that person that you're nervous about talking to uh, about the gospel. I'm going to give you the words to say. I'm going to give you opportunity. I'm going to give you provision to be able to do those things that cause people to believe in me. And so whatever you do, whatever you ask for the purpose of, 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 of my glory, for my name's sake, that will I do. Why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it, which relates to that previous promise. All right. Recognize the purpose and power of prayer. You see, if we take a verse like this and we just say, well, I can say whatever I want, you know. Lord, please let me have a, let's see, what do I want? A Ford F-150 Raptor right there, right outside the, uh, right outside the, the, the headquarters here, right outside the building, uh, in Jesus' name. Oh, it's there, you know, because Jesus said he would do it, right? That's not what it's saying, okay? It's in the context of causing others to believe by doing the works of Jesus, doing the ministry of Jesus. Everything Jesus was doing, minus maybe the miraculous, you know, sign uh, things that he, that he, that he did, um, he was in the ministry of bringing people to God. He was in the ministry of bringing forgiveness to those that were downtrodden, um, to those that were the outcasts, to those that thought that they were great, that thought that they had it all together, that thought they had a way to heaven. Jesus was in the business of telling them the truth that they needed to repent of that sin and that they needed to trust him for their salvation. We're in that same business. And Jesus says, in that business, if you ask anything of the Father, if you pray to the Father for anything that you need in that ministry and you ask it for the purpose of my glory, I will do it. I promise you. Okay? And it might not be fulfilled in the way that we would desire, but that's what Jesus has promised, that he will answer it in a way that glorifies God. All right, let's see here. Um... Okay, let's, let's finish off verse 15, and then we'll, we'll stop there, okay? Letter G, or also known as number 7, I think, okay? And I'm not sure if you have this on the same page or not, but repent and recommit your life to Jesus and his commandments. Keep in mind, all of these points are ways that we can remove trouble from our hearts. Jesus said at the beginning of this chapter, and guess what? He's going to say it at the end, again at the end of this chapter, to let not your heart be troubled. And so everything that we look at here fits in that context. Ways to remove trouble from our hearts. Number seven, 
or letter G, depending on how you're doing it. Repent okay, of any sin in your life, anything that you've done, and recommit your life to Jesus and his commandments. Verse number 15 says this, If you love me, keep my commandments. This is a convicting statement. That's kind of obvious. Okay, How are we doing with this? How are you and I doing with this verse where it says, if you love me, keep my commandments? I have a list here that I've just kind of put together, phrases of the commandments that Jesus has given. And this is just some of the things that he said in the Gospels. One of the things he says is, take no thought for your life. That means don't worry about your life. Don't be anxious about your life. Don't be fearful about your life. How are you doing with that one? Not too good. I don't think any of us, I mean, if I'm honest with myself, maybe I'm projecting onto you guys my own inadequacy, it's okay. But if there's a day that goes by where I'm just like, oh, nope, I'm fine, um, that's probably very few and far between. Because every once in a while, something just pops in there, you know? We're just kind of bent on worry. And uh, Jesus said, take no, take no thought for your life. Don't worry about those things. Seek what God wants you to do. And all of those other things will be taken care of, he said. Um, he also said, so let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. See, all of this, all of this goes together. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father, which is in heaven. It all goes together. He also said, these are some of the other commandments of Jesus. Whosoever shall be angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Basically, Jesus is saying, if you're angry in your heart at somebody, that's, that's basically like having murder in your heart. It kind of parallels what he said about lust. He said, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her in his heart. See, the statements of Jesus, they bring what the law had said internally. And so you don't have to just commit adultery physically to be guilty. You don't just have to uh, murder somebody physically to be guilty of those things. If you've done that in your heart, if you've done it inwardly, Jesus says that, that is, you're just as guilty. Okay? You may not have affected a life uh, as badly as you would have, but in God's eyes, what you've done internally equates to what it would have been physically. He says, love your enemies. How, how, how is that one going? Especially politically. Okay? That's not an easy thing to do sometimes. Then he says, pray for them which despitefully use you. How are you doing with that? If you love me, keep my commandments. Pray for them that despitefully use you. He also says, lay not up for yourself treasures upon the earth. And then later he says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How are we doing with that? You know? Are we hoarding to ourselves shiny things like a, uh, a bird that wants to make a nest? <laughs> um, we should be seeking eternal things. And just so you guys know, this is just as convicting to me. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. I mentioned that already. How are we doing with those things? Um, just kind of a fitting way, I guess, to, to go ahead and close uh, the Bible study um, tonight. Next time that I'm with you, we'll pick it up here in the middle of John chapter 14. But think about how you're doing with, with the things that Jesus said. He said a lot of things that polarized a lot of people. Some people got angry and walked away. Some people came to God and said, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And that's kind of the attitude we need to have. Um, and so if there's anything that God has brought to your mind, I encourage you that uh, tonight before you go to bed, you know, talk to the Lord and re recommit your life to Jesus and, and, and doing his works. And the trouble in your heart will just, just fade away following what Jesus says to do. Receive Jesus. Refocus your eyes on eternity. Rejoice in his return. Realize you already have the solution. What's the solution? Jesus and his death on the cross to your biggest problem. Um, let's go ahead and, and, and close in a word of prayer. We have some, some goodies, and it's uh, somebody's birthday today. And so maybe we'll sing happy birthday to him and his sister, whose birthday's tomorrow. So any questions or discussion before we, before we close? Okay? 
All right, I'll go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for this day. Thank you for this lesson. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the teachings of Jesus and uh, how badly, how greatly he desired to um, bring rest unto the souls of those that he met. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to apply the things that we've studied tonight, uh, trusting, trusting in your son what he's done for us, and uh, looking forward to uh, an eternity, Lord, with him. And also, Lord, the different things that he's set out for us to do here uh, in the meantime, to uh, just share the good news of, of his death, burial, and resurrection for our sin, to share that with everybody that we can possibly come in contact with. We just pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to have a good rest of the night, a good weekend, be with those that are going to be traveling back from Israel on Sunday. And um, we just thank you so much for, for everything that you've done. We pray that you'd bless uh, the rest of our time here and the refreshments and the fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Shalom.